Sebastians, it's Alexa here for The Bast Podcast, and I'm really excited to be joined by someone who, when I first met him, I thought that he may actually be faculty at Hogwarts <laughs> because of the magical stuff that he was actually doing at the time with manual therapy, with myofascial release. He's also an acupuncturist, a student of psychotherapy, owner of the Voice Care Centre in London and co-founder of Vocal Health Education. I'll take a breath. <laughs> so Stephen King, thank you so much for spending some time with me this afternoon. How are things with you? Sounds very busy. Yeah, good. I, I, I'll uh, I'll take that as an introduction and hold it lightly. That was really cool. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Get your wand out. <laughs> yeah, get my wand out. Absolutely, and cast some spells for for my facial release. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So always cool to chat and and to kind of um, unpack uh, parts of the philosophy and the journey and. Uh, the J word, we'll probably use that a lot, the journey. Um, and, um, and yeah, and just to kind of synthesize information uh, in, in new ways. So thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no, it's great. To, it's great to be chatting to you. And clearly from, from all of that that I've just said, you are an advocate for this continued professional development, um, like acupuncturist, psychotherapy, kind of delving into lots of different realms that we you can pull together for the singer, which kind of brings me on to the idea of the biopsychosocial model that you've spoken a bit about, especially in the vocal health education modules. Um, so can you tell us what that is and how that applies to us as vocal coaches? Yeah, sure. So it, it's important to, to preface chatting about biopsychosocial um, with kind of harking back to the ancient Greeks. Um a lot of thinking was done in ancient Greece, uh, which is good because it founded how we do a lot of things uh, in a really good way. And a lot of the kind of medical uh, or, or health philosophers um, were thinking about what it means to do something to somebody and that to be um, reactive in the body. So a cause and effect, we might say now. Um, and, and those things are relatively easy to understand, or so we think, right? So like I, um, so my son is two and I'm just seeing a little yellow biplane that's like metal on the floor. And I know that if I tread on that, I'm going to go, wow, that really hurts because the underside of my foot's a little bit sensitive. Uh, which is probably a good thing evolutionarily, right? So I don't step on snakes and weird stuff uh, so that I survive. And there'll be pain. And that pain will be acute. It will last in, in a kind of window of temporality. And depending on how, uh, you know, spiky that plane is, is probably dependent on how um, much pain I'll feel. So that's very simple. And that's kind of how we think of all things. Uh, however, sometimes there is no obvious causal relationship. And so when there's no obvious causal relationship, we start to have to work way back. Because if there, if we can't find the cause, uh, but there, there will be a cause, but we don't necessarily know what that is or, or can't compute it, 
in our tiny brains, uh, we have to go back to the drawing board. And so, um, you know, we, we have this evolution of different modalities of medicine throughout the ages. You know, it wasn't too long ago that um, limbs would be amputated over anything else if there was pain. Um, and now we don't do that. Um, we don't do that because we know that the brain is really powerful and that, you know, if people have weird itches, tinglings, uh, kind of neuralgic symptoms, any kind of pain without cause, right, neuralgia, um, then lopping off the arm is probably not going to solve the problem. And then we get things like phantom limb syndrome, right? You know, people who have itchy, itches and pins and needles in limbs that don't exist anymore. So, I mean, kind of fast forward to 1977, George Engel, um, who was a kind of, yeah, he, he was a medic, but, but really a medical philosopher, um, although I don't think he ever admitted that, um, said, hey, look, world, I think... I've come up with a way in which we can kind of simply state cause, effect, therapeutic relationship, looking at the person, looking at the dysfunction uh, all together. And he called it the biopsychosocial model. So the biopsychosocial model is a kind of three-part Venn diagram, right? Uh, and medicine loves Venn diagrams. Uh, you know, <laughs> everything's a Venn diagram in medicine. Because uh, there's always overlap, All right? So, um, so the the bio bit is the the biological, biomechanical aspects of us. So, simple cause and effect with the yellow biplane. I step on it, uh, and it. I have a, a trauma, a localized trauma response in the sole of my foot. Um, but biomechanical dysfunction might be hereditary. Um, so, you know, uh, there could be things like, um, I'm just thinking like Huntington's disease, you know, really debilitating, um, neurological, uh, you know, uh, multiple system atrophy, those kind of things, which we inherit sadly. Mm. Um, and, and those, those kind of things exist in that bio bit. The, psycho of the biopsychosocial model talks about psychology so psychology meaning kind of you know like mental health first and foremost well it, you know it wasn't massively uh popular to talk about in the 70s right mm. so george engel was way ahead of his time in, in that sense um but how how our mental health interacts with our biology and so if I am having a particularly bad mental health day and step on that biplane, it stands to reason that the hypersensitivity of my body will be higher and I will feel more pain, maybe for longer, because I'll be frustrated that I stepped on it. Now, also within the, the psychological part of the venn diagram um we've got things like uh hallucinogenic drug effects um 
so if you take mind benders uh if you take hallucinogens um they'll all play an impact both biologically but also psychologically and we've also got you know uh moving sideways from mental health into psychopathology um and so more specialized so anxiety depression um disordered eating any of those uh psychopathologies which then have a biological um interaction right the sociological part so biopsychosocial is all about how we are perceived and how we perceive the world sociologically so you know who are my friends who are my family how's my home life uh, how does that interact with my psychology like how's my home life yeah it's okay uh, i'm buying a house at the moment which is a bit stressful so uh, and I'm, I'm waiting for a phone call at the moment from my mortgage advisor and you know it's that kind of okay so i'm, I'm feeling a little bit imbalanced today and we spoke about that before i came on yeah. um but that's having a a regulation shift in my nervous system right it's it's making me feel in that fight or flight place because I'm going, the phone could ring while I'm talking to Alexa. <laughs> right? And it's like, and that's the phone call that I've been waiting for. Okay. So the, the sociological part, I think, is almost always forgotten or pushed to the side. Because I think it's the least tangible like when somebody comes in to your voice studio and they say, look, you know, I've got, oh man, I'm having a bit of like tension or, you know, when I do this specific note on this vowel, I get this symptom or feeling. It's really easy for us to go anatomy, 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 bio, bio, bio. Part of us will also go, I wonder how they're feeling about that. But probably the question you'll ask and that I will ask is how does it feel, not how does it make you feel? And so how does it feel is still bio. Mm. And when I when I talk to clinicians or to vocal coaches, singing teachers about it, they say, oh, yes, I am holistic because, you know, I look at a person and I go, well, their hips might be affecting the position of their, you know, uh, I don't know, the interaction of their diaphragm, which might be having a, a pressure imbalance thing going on. Uh, so, you know, that that's very holistic. And I'm going, yes, but that's all still bio. So it's like we can we can kind of notice all of that wonderful, wonderful stuff, but it's just bio with extra steps. So you're only ever kind of, according to Engels' work, you're only ever really, even if you could max out bio, you're only 33% of the way mm. to, to truly understanding a person. So the, the social aspect, I think, is, is something that, that voice teachers can really use. Um, I think... <laughs> I think voice pedagogy is a social science. I think, you know, we're very good at listening to people. Uh, I think that's the remit mm. of a good singing teacher, right? Um, 
it's that ability to just kind of sit and, and listen as you are listening to me drone on about the BPS model. No, I'm loving it. <laughs> uh, and, and so, so in, in that we have this kind of like, okay, I'm listening to this person, but it's not about just listening to them, listening to their voice. Cause that's bio. Mm-hmm. It's about listening to what they're telling you about their world. That's affecting their voice. Mm. Um, Case in point, I've been working doing some rehabilitation with some um, uh, students, uh, BA musical theatre students. Musical theatre was my jam, uh, although I hardly teach anymore. Uh, but um, but I've been working, and I just kind of thought this is a bit bizarre. You know, these are really capable students at really you know top courses. I wonder what's going on because they sound to me is like muffled you know we send them off to ENT and you know, no mucosal pathology no signs of muscle tension and then you kind of unpack it and go hey look I'm seeing on the zoom window here that this is this is your bedroom oh yeah yeah this is my bedroom but it's also the room like where I live because I'm only in one room in this house that I share with eight other people in central London and you go okay so are those people in musical theatre? Oh no, no, no! Like one of them studying finance, one of them studying psychology. One, of, right? So, are they okay with you singing? Oh, well, not really. And so you go, okay. <laughs> so when you're singing for me over Zoom and going, look, it's really tight and muffled. Well, of course it is because you're muffling it and it's tight because you don't want people to hear. Mm. Because you can't sing out because your your sociology, that context, doesn't allow it. So that's that would be one example of, of you know how we might better tune ourselves into um, into the kind of psychosocial realms mm. of, of the work. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, and it's really interesting um, because as coaches, I think you know our our main thing sometimes is okay what can I fix at the voice what am I hearing what do I need to do sometimes even looking out for it like if there's nothing obvious thinking oh what can I fix then Mm. there's so much other things to be considering um and I wonder how how can we do all of that in one go how do we consider all of all of those aspects in a split second or in, a, in an introduction, uh, also taking into consideration that that person might not yet be giving you the full picture because they don't know you yet or their personality is shy um, and they don't feel like they can give that over. Is it is it something that we can do within one one lesson? Is it a full kind of lengthy process? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, the, you know, uh, Robert Susuma, who's a, a bit of a, you know, he's my hero, um, talks about words to the effect of microscopic globality, mm-hmm. right? So it's like this idea of zoom in, zoom out. And whilst I think that we can, we as a vocal coach probably have quite a limited remit in terms of what we can and can't do or say, listening is part of our remit. and so. 
when we have somebody come to us and say a lot of things, listening and truly listening, not just listening and waiting to reply, uh, is, I think, something we can all do better at. I think, well, from my, my studies into psychotherapy, you know, there's a real interesting link between psychotherapy and, and voice pedagogy. Um, because ultimately, they're both listening professions. Um, you know, I, I think there's a kind of uh, a mismatch in society where, you know, psychotherapists do to you, you know, they make you, they make your psychopathologies go away, or they help you to realize something, you know, but, but all we do is sit and listen and go, mm, that's interesting. Mm. You know, it's, I, it's, it's very, um, I think unlikely that a psychotherapist will go, right, I hear what you're saying and here's how you should do it differently in your life. Uh, and so when we're kind of synthesizing what we could do in one session, actually just listening really well could could be the starting point to that. Mm. Because people give us all sorts of clues, don't they? People give us clues and they they are here in front of you because they want to be helped. Mm. So So that's what I would say. Mm, it's kind of like that game of Cluedo, isn't it? Mm. Um, of kind of put, grasping everything and going, okay, now I need to go to the library with the candlestick <laughs> and see if that's the case. Yeah. Um, and I know that for, for me, I, it's something I, I want to practice as well is when a student's there and I'm asking a question, it's not for me to then think in my head, okay, what exercise can I give or what can I do? But actually just leaving your mind to settle for a sec and being in that kind of deep listening coach open question land um, yeah yeah and and Carl Rogers uh, who came up with with person-centered care person-centered therapy he um, he said you know that, that active listening is not about listening and forming responses and you know forming ideas in your head active listening is as if you are a window they are speaking through and I, anybody listening to this uh, my, i would throw down a gauntlet and say the next time you're one-to-one -one with someone actively listen the carl rogers way see if you can literally just let the words flow through you and not form any opinion judgment replay any scenario just let the words hang in the air and mm. see what happens mm. um because we do we have we we experience the world differently when when those things occur yeah, yeah absolutely sure. i wonder if that's been something that's been even more challenging for being online when you're seeing mm. yourself and you're thinking bloody hell what's my hair doing today why did i choose this topic? <laughs> i don't have it's that really... problem <laughs> <laughs> oh amazing uh, so when we're talking about the kind of vocal coach remit mm. there's so much packed into that biopsychosocial model mm. that is outside potentially of the vocal coach remit and what we're qualified to do so how do we make sure that we are considering all of that but as well sticking within 
our job title and not kind of stepping into unwanted or un- inappropriate territory. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I, I do have quite a lot to say about this. So I'll uh, so rein me in. <laughs> you <right>. go. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, first things first is that I think there is lots of crossover with lots of professions who deal essentially with identity. Uh, at the core of what a coach is, is they're helping you being with you whilst you discover or rediscover your identity. And vocal identity um, is, is a huge component of our communication right this is not i'm not saying anything new here we all know this on some level or or, or another but particularly working in my capacity with manual therapy at the voice care center where people come in and they literally don't have a voice um when when i sit across from them and they've gone through you know uh, the biomedical route uh, and perhaps what we might call evident the evidence-based route you know, people who, uh, practitioners, clinicians, um, doctors who are basing their treatments on the available evidence uh, works normally very well, except when somebody comes along and there isn't an evidence base available on which to base those treatments, right? Mm. And so then we end up with a bit of a, in a bit of a chasm because the medical profession go well we don't know what's wrong with you and we can't give you a diagnosis so we don't know how to help sorry and then where do they go because nobody should live without a voice Mm. you know Uh, and i think you and i really believe that um and so it is possible in in a in a you know perhaps parallel universe or indeed this one where somebody comes to you having been through a biomedical journey 10 15 17 years of being told that nobody can help and then they find a voice coach and go i wonder if they can help mm-hmm. i don't think that's sticky ground mm-hmm. actually because if all else has failed and they've come to you as a last resort um, and they've got a whole medical history, then your role is to listen really well and synthesize your knowledge and your practice and see if you can help. Mm-hmm. The sticky ground, I think, comes when the vocal coach is the primary um, the. the the primary care um and i think it only gets sticky when the ego of the vocal coach is bigger than the feeling of care for the person in front of them um that that and um experience the more people i see the more voices I hear, the more stories I listen to, the more I know, uh, or, or the more I think I know, I should say, um, 
what might constitute as an orange flag. Right. Not red flags. You know, red flags are pretty obvious. You mm-hmm. know, prolonged hoarseness for three weeks. And, you know, they sound like that. And it's like, whoa, straight to ENT, please. Mm-hmm. Straight to ENT. Um, however, when, when there are kind of murky, kind of grayscale things, where, you know, on and off bouts of reoccurring muscle tension dysphonia and whispered aphonia and, you know, and then you kind of go, okay, but you're fine – you're, you know, perceptively fine today in front of me. That's, and, you know, you've not seen a doctor about this, mm. you know, well, I've seen my GP and they say it's acid reflux. And, you know, m- myself as somebody who's informed by the evidence base can probably say that it isn't acid reflux mm-hmm. um, based on the symptoms. But then I've got 45 minutes to listen to this person and the GP who they saw had 45 seconds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, we, uh, yes. So, <laughs> when we're in this primary care role, uh, I think it's important that we know enough to be able to refer on to the right person who can help. Mm. And I mean, that's that's why um, Ginevra and I put together the vocal health first aid because. We knew people, we knew coaches were doing primary care, primary vocal health work mm. without any without any acknowledgement, first of all, of great work they were doing. But also those who didn't have an experience or an evidence base or, or whatever, who didn't have great mentors, um, then were, were doing something that, that perhaps could have or could have had quite serious you know, consequences down the line. Mm. And so we just thought, wow, can we, can we put something together and maybe standardize this a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I think as well, you know, being a psychosocially informed practitioner is, um, is seen as dangerous in a way because we're not a therapist. Mm Mm-hmm. But do you know what? We're also not a biomechanist. And nobody kind of talks about that side of it. Like nobody goes, yes, but you can't do anything with their TA muscle or their or the PCA swing or function or rotation uh, because you actually don't have a degree in, in biomechanics. Nobody says that. Mm. Uh, but yet people will say, hey, look, you know, you need to know your limit because you're not a psychotherapist. Um, and so, uh, but, but then on the same thing, you know, looking at somebody's context and, and when you take a history with a client, nobody's going to say, yeah, but you can't do that because you're not a historian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I kind of dance in between. And in a way, you know, that, that was part of the journey of, of going into psychotherapy is going, right, you know, really what is safe um, mm. And to be honest, the the first lesson that that we had was to be a good psychotherapist. You need to listen. You need to reflect on what you've heard, and then you need to summarise what you've heard back to that person. Mm. And if you do that, you're only ever using their words. Mm-hmm. And it's those three things that actually are reflective in coaching, anyway. And so. 
Yes, of course. You know, being a, uh, you know, if you're if you're studying as a psychotherapist and um, and then you know going perhaps more into like the psychoanalysis route, um, which is probably where I'll end up uh, because it's a mega field and mm. awesome and super interesting. Um, then you know to become a registered psychoanalyst analyst you need to go through a full psychoanalysis yourself so that's one hour every day for a year wow you know so so (laughs) when you get to that point you are so empty of your own bias that you really can sit across from the other person listen Mm. and then maybe say something Mm. that isn't their words which then also goes into the idea that there's not just one biopsychosocial model in the room, there's two, because there's the, the teacher and yours. And if we go into that whole, well, if teacher's feeling a bit low that day or has had some bad news, or how is that then reflected on the listening process? And there's so much going on in that in that moment. Um and there's um I haven't done a huge amount of reading on it, but I'd I'd like to, which is the whole polyvagal idea as well um and i guess with with the people that are coming in and we might be the only person they feel they can be themselves with the idea of suggesting or the likelihood of them seeking extra help that we feel that they might benefit from or is is there for outside of our remit they might not want to go and but we are that saving grace for them and is it is it appropriate, therefore, then to step away from that person when actually we're doing them good? Um, it's it's a tricky one. Yeah, it is. It is a tricky one because, I mean, one of the critiques of the biopsychosocial model, um, and you know, I, I'm. It, it's funny. I I kind of become a little bit Mister Biopsychosocial, um, which is cool because I love the model. But there are critiques that I that I hold quite close. Um, one being that when people first learn about the biopsychosocial model, they look at it and they go, yes, that's what I'm doing already. Mm. And it's bio with extra steps. The next bit of learning that you do with the BPS model is, okay, so I'm going to ask them about their biology. Then I'm going to ask them about their psychology. And then I'm going to ask them about their sociology. And that newsflash, that isn't the biopsychosocial model. That's a biological model, a psychological model, and a sociological model and not in tandem. Mm. The once you start to synthesize the interaction and the interlocking, right, with, with those three things, um, the next kind of big critique is that you can end up being incredibly passive because you just spend your whole time uh listening mm. and being an open window and allowing space and time and direction from the person in front of you you know so so it it doesn't become directive from you the coach it becomes reflexive um and that's i guess okay unless you've got somebody who is inexperienced as a singer mm. and they do actually need some guidance because uh, at some point you'll you'll have somebody and you'll go look i understand why you want to do it that way but to the best of my knowledge if you continue doing it that way i think you're going to hurt yourself and like i get it that that's the sound you want but i wonder if there's a way in which we can make that sound 
without all the extrinsic muscular effort, mm. for example. Um, or, you know, the kind of um, psychosocial stresses of, you know, will my voice come out tonight for the gig? Uh, you know, so I'm just going to ha- do a ritual dance, wear my lucky socks and, you know, throat coat and, you know, um, all of that yeah. s- stuff. So so I think with that then becomes a kind of practitioner reliance mm-hmm. where because you become this mirror that it, that, and it's a big reflective process that we never break that cycle. Mm. So at some point, I think, you know, th- th- there is there is that cutoff, you know. I, I mean, I will only see people for six sessions. That's it. Right. Um, for manual therapy. I, I think if I can't make a substantial shift for them in one session, one to two sessions, then I'm probably the wrong biopsychosocial energy for you. Um. And that's, you know, both, as you said, you know, their BPS and mine, not mm. dancing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if in six sessions, I, you know, there hasn't been some kind of lasting change through the work we've done, then, um, then I think it needs, you know, somebody else to step in. Mm. And I guess a branch of that is having that network of somebody else to refer them on to and as well having that multidisciplinary um, kind of tree, which your voice care centre is with with all the different um, knowledges, knowledge bases that you've got there. Yeah. So where, so why is a multidisciplinary team essential and who, who have you got there at the voice care centre? Yeah, okay. So I'll start with the first question. Why is a multidisciplinary team kind of essential in uh, and I'm going to kind of finish your sentence for you if I may in care of the professional voice right absolutely um because voices are complex and if they're a biopsychosocial phenomena uh, unlike me stepping on the plane right uh, which is cause and effect yes monocausal then if I'm just doing biological interventions or biomechanical interventions rather you know i'm cracking a joint i'm needling a muscle then i'm i'm not sure we're maximizing the use of the whole of the of the being in front of me um so for me everything revolves around mindset and mindfulness first of all Mm -hmm. so everybody going through a multidisciplinary treatment treatment plan sees brenda our mindset coach, who is just astonishing and um, incredibly healing. Um, and they're put on a, a 21-day plan, meditation plan. Mm. And um, it's interesting because, you know, the people who say, oh, well, you know, I um, I don't need mindfulness. I just need to be not scared of my voice problem. I often think, yes. And that's probably exactly why you need mindfulness. Mm. But there's mindfulness seems a bit wishy-washy at the moment in terms of the the ether of information. Mm. Um, so anyway, the um, so we got Brenda, and then and then really it kind of fans out. So myself um, doing the the manual therapy, 
Um, Chloe Spencer, who's the osteopath, vocal osteopath who works with us, um, who's also a singing teacher um, and also an um what is she, a forensic archaeologist in a former life? Well, wow. yeah, awesome, awesome. But again, you know, all of these things, being an interdisciplinary practitioner, like, you know, if you are a forensic archaeologist and you kind of go, right, well, that tells me something because, you know, it's psychoanalysis, anything but archaeology of the mind. I don't know, you know. Um, so, anyway, um, then um, Lydia Flock, who, uh, I trained in vocal massage and she's a fully qualified massage therapist in her own right as well. Um, then we've got Dr. Ginevra Williams who does the vocal rehab coaching. Again, she only limits it to three sessions mm-hmm. max. You know, it's like you come, we assess, we work through it, you get the exercises and then you have to go away and do the work that we've discovered together. Mm-hmm. Um Duncan Rock, who's our nutritional scientist, who is um, uh, training for his next lot of qualifications. This will be his fourth master's um, in um, yeah in uh, physiotherapy. So that's you know he's um, he's fantastic, and and of course being a world renowned operatic baritone and a nutritional scientist, it's really applicable knowledge. You know, because he gets what he gets that singers just finish a show and go, I'm starving. I mm. want a kebab and it's 1 a.m. Yeah. Like he gets that, you know, but you go and see a nutritionist who doesn't understand what it is to be a performer. They kind of go, Well, why would you do that? Mm. <laughs> and you go, But you haven't come out of a West End theater at 1 a.m. and gone, I, I just need a kebab. That's all that was, that is all that will do right now you know yeah. um uh and um then we've got our speech therapists lydia hart and lauren gray um so they're both voice specialists and um and then we have obviously our ongoing um referrals to declan costello who's mm. our recommended ent surgeon Brilliant. so you know it's a it's a well round oh, and of course newest edition uh, who I forgot was uh, Lynn Hilton. Get old Lynn. bass founder Lynn Hilton, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, who's doing her um, RTT stuff, mm-hmm. um, and and so so being multidisciplinary. Look, lots of places, including charities and NHS trusts and things, say they're multidisciplinary, and um, and when you kind of scratch beneath the surface just because you have many practitioners with many different disciplines, that doesn't mean you're multidisciplinary. That means you're cross-disciplinary. But multidisciplinary is where all of those people talk from their expertise with each other about you so that each further intervention builds on the last and on all of the previous experience of all the practitioners. Mm. Which is why, you know, people are surprised when they go, but but what do you mean the whole treatment plan will be a month and a half? And um, it's like, well, because we all talk mm-hmm. and we build and it's so personalised. So it's not like going in for six weeks of speech therapy on the NHS, which is a linear process with one therapist. Uh, and maybe that speech therapist never saw your scope. Mm. And so, you know, I will go with our 
patients to the scope um you know if if it works out that way that that i can Mm. um or or ginevra will and we'll sit in with them we'll get the diagnosis from declan um and then we'll work it back from there Mm. or maybe they come with a diagnosis uh that is uh you know kind of muscle tensiony functional imbalancey type thing mm. rather than you know mucosal pathology and so it's up to us then to work out the best way back to optimum function mm. and what a support um, network that is i mean yeah you're just cradling the person and carrying them through a very difficult situation um which is quite amazing really mm. yeah. yeah yeah and and you know our kind of unofficial slogan is we'll hold you until you're ready oh mm. oh god i had a little <laughs> lump in the throat there <laughs> yeah yeah little globus sensation yeah no, globus it, sensation. <laughs> but, but it, it that kind of came about because um you know there's such a focus on manual therapy and any intervention having to hurt to help mm. and i mean i know we spoke about this years ago you mm. and i um you know saying that it doesn't have to hurt to help you know this it can be gentle it can be mindful and it can be it can be the body can perceive it as deep and very personal without the pressure being heavy yeah because pressure and depth are two different things Mm. um Mm. and you know i think that that on that you know the the importance of the multidisciplinary team um is that we all share in that philosophy. Mm. You know, I'm not going to elbow somebody's larynx into submission. It, 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 from the from the synthesizing of the evidence that, that I have done um, personally, and, you know, what you were talking about, about kind of the polyvagal stuff, but I'll, I'll not use that term, but more just a regulation of the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Like we get put into this, you know, if somebody's coming at you and their their elbows going into your larynx, you know, that's. I think you're going to be shocked by that. Yeah, not too comfortable. <laughs> well, not too comfortable, but but also like pain. The definition of pain from the from the ISP is that you know. Uh, it's a, an unpleasant um, sensory perception with actual or potential tissue damage. Mm. I just don't think that can ever be good. <laughs> well, you know, no. I don't. It's counterintuitive. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I mean, how can we talk to you and not talk about anatomy? I mean, I think that you've earned yourself <laughs> the anatomy guru. <laughs> title throughout the field um and it's really just based upon you know anatomy for the new coach even not for the new coach sometimes sounds a bit bonkers I mean if I if I think about transverse lingualis I I don't really think about the tongue I think bowl of delicious pasta to be honest with you (laughs) and like the baroreceptors or whatever it's I think I'm in Jurassic Park I, I don't really think about any anatomy to be honest <laughs> and then you think okay we're not we're not in game of thrones or it's not a harry potter spell um but they certainly sound like it <laughs> so what are the systems that you think 
or like the top one that you think a vocal coach could really benefit from knowing about and, and kind of getting their head around the anatom- anatomical terminologies? Mm. That's a good question. Um, I've done I've I've done quite a lot of work in terms of my own anatomical knowledge. Um, I was mentored by Meribeth Dame, which was an astonishing education in anatomy, both physiological and kind of astrological, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and some of that I use, and a lot of it I don't. Um, uh, but but I think what Meribeth gave me uh, or perhaps what I understood from Meribeth's work is that you can spend 10 lifetimes learning anatomy and um, you won't be a better teacher as a result. Mm-hmm. So holding that lightly um, and, um, and, and kind of looking at that for what it is, I would say movement and motion Go on, give us give us your phrase. Give us give us it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's movement is medicine, motion is lotion. Hey, there it is. <laughs> and because if you can label all of the parts in a textbook, that's really good. You know, it's just good because it's good, right? Um, but some people don't learn like that. But let me tell you this: when I labeled all the parts in the textbook and then got into the dissection lab and held a larynx for the first time, I had no idea what the muscles were. Mm. I couldn't make it happen in 3D because, uh, and you know, and I've got all the fancy larynx models and this and that, and, you know, I've studied the, I've studied it. And yet when I held it, uh, cadaveric tissue, it somehow, it, it's like I, I knew I needed to spend 2,000 hours just holding it to, to understand it in a three-dimensional capacity. So, so to that end, Function, 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 function. So I, I, you know, I don't really now too much care for, um, you know, the naming of the parts. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I, I mentioned the PCA earlier, so let's take that. You know, the the PCA is the ab abductor of the posterior portion of the vocal folds. Um, it, you know, it allows us to breathe in freely and openly. Uh, I think there's something interesting about that, that the engagement of the PCA opens the glottis. Uh, if the engagement of the PCA opens the glottis, but literally all of the other muscles, right, are designed to close it, mm-hmm. well, that means that we can have the PCA engaged and some other things engaged, which might stabilize phonation. So then you look at, okay, well, it's not just about, right, TA dominance or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's like if um, those intrinsic muscles, the adductors are working, but then we don't want so much squeeze, we need to engage the PCA maybe as a result to, to create a resultant force that enables the opposite. Right. It's not necessarily about just disengaging TA, right, or disengaging uh, LCA or whatever. It could be engaging PCA. And, and this is where I start to go, but because we'll probably, well, certainly in, in mine and yours lifetime, probably never really specifically know that. Mm. Um, 
truly, you know, as if our life lives depended on it, right? Um, then we've got to go for what it sounds like and what it feels like. Mm-hmm. So it's all perception and all coming back to identity. Yeah. So I think there's this kind of idea that we can we can synthesize the the work and we can and we can put it together. You know, the naming of the parts. And you've got to be able to understand the the function and the parts and pieces to be able to do that. Mm. But ultimately, like, what does that give us in the room? Because in the room, I don't have an endoscope. Mm-hmm. And so I can't tell you how much a, a degree of activation the PCA is, it, 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 you know, is a current or not. Mm. <sighs> Having said all of that, um things work on us on systems and i think if you can organize the idea of those pulleys and those systems then i think you start to build a nice kind of like meccano set mm. of the larynx uh, and the vocal tract like when i do whatever vowel where does my tongue go and then what is the reactionary force on the hyoid bone. Mm. So if I raise the tongue, I'm probably going to raise the larynx as a result. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably quite useful Mm. because when I have somebody in the, in the voice care center who, if I'm doing an assessment and I say, can you go? And they go, Oh yeah. And I'm like, huh, okay, that's very interesting. And there's a paradoxical larynx movement, you know, something against the grain for mm. me. Then that tells me something. But it's it's not necessarily about where the hyoid bone is. It's about how it works in that that pulley system. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's it's difficult if, when you've studied it yeah. <laughs> and continue to study it to kind of go, Oh yeah, it's, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Do whatever. <laughs> Just get in there. Listen, that'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the, tram- the transverse lingualis really is just pasta. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but you've got a, um, focal health education just launched your functional anatomy course. Yes. So, yeah. So, so the fundamental anatomy course, um, Sorry, yes, fundamental anatomy is, course, yeah. yeah, which is a fantastic resource. And basically it is that first part. So it's that labeling of the pieces. So it's getting yourself in line. Um, and, and, you know, really understanding that this is this, that's that, that's where it sits. This is how it moves because, you know, not and again, you know, we we've got some of like the world's best anatomists teaching on this course. Um, for me, I spent three years learning from Meribeth, um, and I mean, she taught the surgeons vocal anatomy. You know, at, at the Royal College, so so I had this really kind of privileged insight into the parts and pieces. Mm. Um, and I and I wanted other people to have that, you know. And um, and to be honest, from when I had the idea to when it was all put together was was just over eight weeks. Because I just wrote to people and went, "Hey, look, don't you think that's important?" And they went, "Yes, my very specialised bit of knowledge of anatomy is really important." Boom, whack it in. Mm. 
So, you know, if you are interested in getting that parts and pieces, nuts and bolts kind of level, then check it out because it's, it's fantastic and it's really comprehensive. Mm. Amazing. Yes, thank you. And uh, before we let you go, mm. what um, I'd be really interested to know, what was the most surprising thing you found dissecting a body? Um, probably the most interesting thing is... Um, anatomical variation um there was one one cadaver who um you know we we were kind of taking apart and um i kind of went what what is this bit <laughs> flicking um, it around on your tweezers <laughs> yeah like well because our our anatomist who was taking us through the surgical anatomist um actually made us do it bare hands oh, um okay. yeah he said you're not a true anatomist Stephen, unless you can feel it <laughs> like a um, butcher <laughs> yeah 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 um and um and so you know i've got this kind of bit it's kind of about that long and it looks a bit like a fish um and i'd taken it off of the clavicle and we kind of worked through it and concluded that it was probably a second clavicular head of the sternocleidomastoid. Right. And, of course, then it kind of throws everything you know about, you know, whatever to do with the SCMs right out. Well, if it's got a second uh, clavicular head that comes to the midpoint of the clavicle, then you go, okay, uh, right. So then the function of turning the head would have been impeded by the tightness of this so they probably had very limited head mobility. Mm. And I wonder how over-pathologized that was in their life. But it just turns out they had a third bit of their SCM. Mm. So I think that was probably the the most transformative. Um, that and, you know, the, the, the anatomical differentiations in the spine. You know, people having an extra C uh, cervical um, uh cervical vertebrae or lumbar vertebrae you know and so you kind of go the spine is this long but on this person is this long or this long <laughs> and then you kind of go okay so then it kind of puts everything into perspective as a manual therapist where you're you know going to manipulate the cervical spine or, or click and crack someone and you know it's you're thinking you're on c3 and actually if they've got an eighth cervical vertebrae then it might be c4 um yeah. which yeah so so that was that was kind of transformative for me mm. I think they'll be lining up to uh, to have your cadaver in the, in the in the clinic one day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> open. Let's see what's in there. Yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, it's been awesome to chat to you. Thank you so much for taking the time out. Um, and yeah, I wish you all the best with everything you're doing.